If you have your Bibles with you, if you would take them out and turn to Matthew chapter 11. How big of a doubter are you? How big of a, a doubter are you? Market research firm Lab42 a couple of months ago released some research where they discovered that 76% of people believe that advertising contains exaggerated claims. 76% of people. Only 3%, 3% of people believe that ads are, quote-unquote, very accurate. And that was ads in print, TV, Internet, or social media. So advertising is changing us. It's making us skeptical people, people who doubt. We read the description of a product. We see the wonders that it can perform when it's demonstrated to us, but we don't really believe that the product is going to work for us, at least not as advertised. And then what about photos? You know, in the past, a picture, solid evidence, hold up in any court. Today, the first question we ask if we see a really good picture, particularly if it's a really good picture of me, is that real or is it photoshopped, right? We don't even know if pictures are real or not. And so our culture is shaping us. It's molding us. It's turning us more and more into people who doubt. We doubt what we read. We doubt what we see. Sometimes we, as Advent people, people who are now celebrating the the first advent of Christ and we are looking forward to his second coming, we doubt what we read about Jesus while we wait. You know, our minds have painted a picture of him as we read the gospel stories of his life. But sometimes we doubt that Jesus will be that to us. When Jesus doesn't do for us what we want him to do, when he won't be for us who we want him to be, when the Lord's agenda for our lives does not match the agenda that we have for our own lives, what do we do? We doubt. This morning, we're going to see that when we doubt, we are in very good company. We're in good company. But we don't have to remain in doubt. And certainly, None of us have to let doubt destroy our faith. If you and I will handle our doubt honestly and rightly, our doubt can actually lead us to a very healthy place, a place of of greater faith. And that's the place that all of us need to be. While we wait for the Lord to return, less doubt, greater faith. Less doubt, greater faith. Let's see if we can get there as we come to this passage this morning. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. 
As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Excuse me. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word preserving it for us, teaching us through it, changing us by it as your spirit joins your word to make us different people, transformed people. That's our prayer this morning, that you would do that in us and through us, Lord, change us as we come together around your word and as you speak truth to us through your word and by the power of your spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. Let's take just a minute to set the context for this passage. If you look in verse 2, it tells us that John is in prison. Well, let's back up and see how he ended up being put in prison. If you were here last week, we talked about John. You, you remember that, hopefully. We saw that in his very brief time of ministry, John became a wildly popular preacher. People were coming from everywhere to hear him preach. Villages, towns, cities like Jerusalem. They were leaving the places where they lived to go all the way out into the desert to hear John preached. That that could happen in a word-of-mouth culture, a culture that wasn't connected, a culture that had no social media, no videos that could go viral overnight and receive millions of views, That John could be that popular without the benefit of all those things speaks volume about the kind of person John was and about his personality. People were talking about John. People were drawn to John and his simple, direct, bold message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if he has done nothing else, Donald Trump has brought to light how unaccustomed we are to people saying what they think. He must be a spin doctor's nightmare. Don't you picture them behind the cameras, watching him, listening, what, what's he saying? He can't say that. What are we going to do? We're shocked often by what Donald Trump says. And in many ways, he is an oddity, truly. He is an oddity in a culture that has been muzzled by political correctness. Now, please, those of you who don't like Donald Trump, get over it. I'm not supporting him. He's not the point here, but his personality is just a little bit. And I'm certainly not saying that John the Baptist is like Donald Trump. Please imagine. (laughs) But John was bold, and John did not worry about political correctness. To the rich of his day, to the powerful of his day, to the movers and shakers and to the, 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 the culture changers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus said what? You brood of vipers, who warned you 
to flee from the coming wrath. And he talked about the axe being at the root of the tree, ready to cut them down if they did not produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Cut down and thrown into the fire, unquenchable fire. That's what John said to these important people. He said what he thought even to King Herod. Now listen to this. Herod was married to Herodias. Herodias was the granddaughter. You're going to have to follow this. She's the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And that's the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. But before Herodias was married to this Herod, the one that had John in prison, she was married to Herod Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great by a wife who wasn't the grandmother of Herodias. All right? Well, when Herod, that threw John in prison, came to visit his half-brother, Herod Philip, who was married to Herodias, that Herod that threw John in prison was the son of Herod the Great by yet another woman. So he comes to visit his half-brother and he sees his wife, Herodias, and he becomes infatuated with his half-brother's wife, who, by by the hand, uh, who, who, by the way, was also his niece. So are you following this? So Herod and Herodias have this affair. They leave their spouses and they get married. And so now Herod is married to Herodias, who is his brother's ex-wife and his niece, now his wife. Who followed that? Now, what do you think, John, knowing his personality, what do you think he's going to do in this situation? Do you think John is going to be able to keep quiet about this twisted, incestuous relationships. Do you think he is? No, I'll just tell you, he did not keep quiet. He went to King Herod, and in accordance with his fiery character, John told Herod, the king, the king, it is not lawful for you to have Herodias as your wife. Woo! Well, that was the truth. Herod was making a mockery of marriage and family. But unfortunately, Herod did not want to hear the truth that John had to speak to him. So he had John arrested and he had him thrown in this deep, dark dungeon, literally. And so one consequence of John's fiery personality is that it got him thrown into prison. There's a second consequence of John's fiery personality. It caused him to doubt Jesus. Look in verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Now, if you're sitting on the first few rows here, let me just tell you, you may want to move back because I'm getting ready to disagree with John Calvin from a Presbyterian pulpit. Can you imagine You've been warned. Here's what John Calvin writes. The opinion entertained by some that John sent his disciples partly on his own account is exceedingly foolish, as if he had not been fully convinced or obtained distinct information that Jesus is the Christ. It is very evident that the holy herald of Christ, perceiving that he was not far from the end of his journey, And that his disciples still remained in a state of hesitation, resorted to this last expedient for curing their weakness. See, Calvin believed that John dreaded that after his own death, 
that his disciples would entirely fall away. And therefore, he earnestly attempted to arouse them from their sloth by sending them to Christ. So John Calvin and others before him and others since him, in order to protect John's faith, claim that John sending his disciples to Jesus was for their benefit, not for his own. But why would a man like John, bold and straightforward, take such a roundabout way to get his disciples to go talk to Jesus? Wouldn't it in fact be disingenuous, treachery on John's part to pretend to have doubts about Jesus so that his disciples would go see him? It seems much more probable to me that John would say to his disciples, You brood of unbelievers, where's your faith? Go to Jesus. Ask him yourself. Are you the one or should we look for someone else? Go. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on Matthew, he falls in line with Calvin and writes, This question did not arise from doubt or unbelief on the part of John. We do that holy man injustice if we interpret it in such a way. It was asked for the benefit of his disciples. But I believe that we do John and ourselves and humans in general and the gospel and grace a greater disservice if we don't allow John to doubt. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid that John doubted? Are we afraid that if the mighty John doubts, then perhaps none of us should believe If John isn't sure, then maybe you and I can't be sure either. If the John who pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If the John who says, The one I said is coming after me. He's greater than I am. There he is. If John said, I saw the Spirit descend on him and remain on him. And the one who sent me told me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. He's the one. If John recants, after all of that, might we recant as well? If his bold, unwavering confidence in Christ evaporates, what might happen to our faith and confidence? No wonder John Calvin can't allow himself or anyone else to believe that John doubted because the consequences are too scary. But I think it's better for us to allow John to doubt and see if we can get at the source of his doubt. Look in verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to him. Apparently, John is able to receive visitors while he's in prison. And they're informing John of all Jesus' activities. And so all of John's doubt is connected to what Jesus is doing. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's gathering people on the side of a mountain and he's teaching them things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The poor, the mourning, the merciful, the meek. He's teaching them to pray 
Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's teaching them, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He's healing people that don't seem particularly important. Lepers, blind people, deaf people, a man with a withered hand. He brought someone back to life, but it was just a little girl. And the only son of a widow. This is how Jesus is spending his time. Now, put those activities alongside John's message about the coming wrath. John has placed an axe in Jesus' hand. And perhaps fire coming from his mouth or from his finger that would ignite this unquenchable fire awaiting those evil people who stood against God and would not repent. But instead of wielding an axe, Jesus wields a gentle healing touch. And instead of breathing words of fire, words of grace and compassion come from his mouth. And so John might well ask, what's Jesus doing? I paved the way for him. I made the path straight for him. Now I'm stuck in prison and Jesus is squandering the opportunity. Why doesn't he get on with it? And this, I believe, is the source of John's doubt. And quite honestly, I believe it's a source of, of my doubt and your doubt as well. We have in our minds a picture of who Jesus is, an idea of what he should do for us or even in our world. We always know what God should do in the world. And when Jesus doesn't fit our picture, and when our hopes are dashed or unfulfilled, then we begin to doubt Jesus. And we become disappointed and disillusioned with him. And that's what I believe lies behind John's question. Since John is convinced that what the coming Messiah is to do, and since Jesus is not doing any of those things, John asks, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Let's be clear. John was not wrong in his message. He was absolutely right. His message was inspired by God. Luke chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit of God before his birth. But before the wrath, before the axe, before the fire, would come the gospel age. The age of grace. And that's what Jesus came to do in the form of a baby. He came to usher in this time of grace. What John talked about, it's going to happen. But it has to wait for the second coming. So I'm glad that you and I, waiting people, have this story about John. Because it seems to be part of the human condition that we doubt. What's important is what we do with our doubt. What did John do with his doubt? John went straight to Jesus through his disciples. He didn't have a caucus in his cell. He didn't call together his top disciples and say, what's up with Jesus? What in the world is he doing? He didn't discuss it with them. He didn't debate it with them. Instead, he went straight to the source, straight to Jesus in a straightforward manner. Are you the one? Now, when you ask a question like that, there are only two possible answers. If the answer is no, 
I'm not the one, then John is safe. Jesus is of no significance and can't do him any harm. But if the answer is yes, I am the one, you have just asked the one that you believe should be swinging an axe and starting a fire, are you the one? And if Jesus were to act in accordance with what John believed about him, John would be in a precarious position. (laughs) Oh, John. Yes, I'm the one. Now let me show you what I do to doubters. But it doesn't appear that John is calculating enough to worry about the consequences of his question. He just wants an honest answer from Jesus. And that's what I want to imitate in my life. And I think that's what you should imitate in your life. An honest answer from Jesus. John is at the end of himself. He can't help himself. He can't free himself. He just goes to Jesus, and the answer will be whatever the answer will be, but that's okay, because the answer came from Jesus. You and I can talk just as honestly with Jesus as John did. When I first started in the ministry 23 years ago, I was so dumb. (laughs) I'm not much better now. But I saw myself as the middleman. I, Craig, had to stand in the middle between Jesus and between people. And I thought I had to protect them both. What if I counseled people in this way? Just go to Jesus. Be honest. What if Jesus didn't show up? What if Jesus didn't answer in, in the way they wanted him to? Then then what would they think about Jesus? I I have to protect them from what Jesus may not do. So what's the alternative? (laughs) Don't send people to Jesus. Where else are you going to go? Where else are we going to go? What do we tell people? Don't be honest. No. All of us need to go to Jesus. And you know what? It will be up to him what he does in that moment with us. Totally up to him. It'll be for our good and it will be for His glory. And so I can say to myself, and I can say to you, and I do say it, go, go ask Jesus. His response to you and to me right now, it's unknown to us. And it will remain unknown until we go. But in this case, because we have the Word of God, we know what Jesus' response was to John the doubter. And so let's be encouraged next by Jesus' response. Look in verse 4. Jesus tells the disciples of John, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So Luke, Once again, let's just consider what Jesus' response was not. John's doubt did not force Jesus' hand. John's prison door did not swing open as proof that Jesus was the true king and not Herod. John did not go free. Nor did Jesus become in that moment who John thought he should be. He didn't pick up an axe and start swinging it. He didn't in a sudden outburst of vengeance destroy unrepentant sinners. And he didn't start an unquenchable fire. He didn't do any of those things. Nor did Jesus respond in anger. 
John, how dare you question me? Nor did he withdraw and pout because his feelings were hurt. John, you mean you don't believe in me anymore? None of that. Jesus' response is simply to point John to what John already knew. What John had already seen and what John had been told was still going on. Miracles of grace and compassion and healing were happening. Good news. Good news was being preached to the poor. But in all of this, Jesus is really pointing John back to Scripture. Particularly Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's according to prophecy. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So all that John has seen and all that John has heard is going on, every bit of it is in accordance with Scripture. What John preached is in accordance with Scripture, but so is what Isaiah preached, all of it. So here's what John and you and I need to know. God is working out His plan according to the word He has spoken. God is working out His plan according to the word that He has spoken. And because God is sovereign, He has the ability to do that. Our minds can't grasp it all. You know what? And that ought to make us humble. We think we know so much. We can take a truth or two or three or maybe four about the Lord and we can retain those in our mind and balance them all at the same time. But the big picture of who God is, it's too enormous for us. Please know that. It's too enormous for us to take in all at once. But it's not too big for God. He never forgets a word of His word. He works all of it together for His glory. So in His response, Jesus is encouraging John to hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the word of God. Find hope in the eternal word of God. Jesus thought it was better for John. He thought it was better. For John to work through his doubt by working through the truth of Scripture. He believed that the impact of that exercise of faith would be much better for John than if he did something phenomenal or miraculous. That's Jesus' response. And so the disciples go away. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. And it seems like he knows, because he does know, what the crowd is thinking. There may be a John Calvin in the crowd or J.C. Ryle who think it unthinkable that a man like John the Baptist could doubt, that it's exceedingly foolish to believe such a thing or a great injustice to that holy man or worse still, that he could be holy if he had any doubt. And so look at what Jesus tells the crowd who had an witness this entire encounter. Let's just go to verse 11. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. That's Jesus' assessment 
of doubting John. It's so much different than our assessment. Do you know what they say about Christians? Lots of things. But this one in particular. Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded. Christians are the only one who shoot their wounded. One slip up, one mistake, shock, (gasps) disgust. (sighs) We write you off, but not Jesus. And that's why Jesus is really the center of this story. Because it's yet another opportunity for him to display his grace. If scripture were not inspired, if the authors weren't absolutely determined that they were going to tell the truth, this is one of the stories that you would definitely leave out about your hero. It puts a crack in your airtight case, a chink in the armor where people can move in for the kill. Ha! Look what happened to that mighty John, the man of faith. But this story is the story of Scripture. It's the story of of Jesus' grace. The story that's told over and over and over again so that doubters like you and doubters like me would know that we are not alone. We are in good company. A story that lets us know how Jesus deals with doubters. He does not reject them. I find it highly unlikely that you and I Advent people, while we wait for Christ's return, will never doubt. I believe that I am going to doubt. And I believe that you're going to doubt. And I think life has already happened to some of you. Where life is going to happen to us in a way that makes us wonder if our faith has been rightly placed in Jesus. It's going to make us wonder if there's any point to faith at all. Maybe we shouldn't have believed the advertisements. Maybe the picture that was presented to us of who Jesus is was too photoshopped. But then we go to Jesus for ourselves. Ourselves. We go to the truth of his word for ourselves. And we know Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. And so we humbly pray when we go to Jesus that he would realign our thinking and our believing with his story and with his grace. That's where we, like John, are going to find a way out of doubt. But listen, if, if you don't go, you won't know. If you don't go, Jesus Are you the one? You won't hear his answer. We're not told what John's response is because that's not part of the story. Jesus' grace is part of the story. But you know what? I know what John's response was. We don't even have to ask. I know that John believed. And you know how I know? Because he received from Jesus' grace. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's all John needed to know. And so I know that John believed. You and I, we are all in this together. You believe, look, look around. All of us are in this together, and none of us are going to get out of this alive. We're not. All of us are waiting people. And we can be such a tremendous help. We can be a tremendous help 
to each other, when we don't shoot each other, when we don't condemn each other, when we're weak or when we doubt, but when instead we tell one another the story of Jesus, our great Redeemer, over and over and over again. I'm closing with this. It's a request. But the request is written in the form of a hymn written in 1866 by Catherine Hankey. She had been on the mission field in Africa, but she had to return to London because she was so desperately ill. She remained in bed for month after month after month after month, not knowing whether she would ever recover or not. And so from her bed, this is what she wrote. Tell me, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption God's remedy for sin, tell me the story often, for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly, with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your story. Thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you for the story that's before us today. And the hope that it is to our souls and the encouragement that it is to us. Because we have not yet been made perfect by you. That waits for the day that we are with you in glory. Until then, Lord, we will struggle with sin. And part of our sin is our doubt. We shouldn't doubt, Father. And I pray that no one here this morning goes away thinking, oh, it's okay to doubt you. No, make it clear to us, Lord, we have no reason to doubt you. Never in all of history have you ever given anyone any reason to doubt. You have always been faithful to your people. Always you've been faithful to the word that you have spoken to us without fail. Our doubt is not your fault, Lord. It's a result of our own sin. We thank you so much, Lord, that in this story this morning, you've shown us how you deal with doubters. You deal with us through your grace. And so I just pray this, Lord, that all of us here this morning would know what to do with our doubt, 
We don't need to talk to other people about it. We need to talk to you about it. We're so often we say things about you that aren't true because we don't really take time to actually do these things, to actually go to you. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Go, go, go to Jesus. Ask him, Lord, we know that you will respond to us through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. Father, I pray that your story would always be on our lips, speaking your truth, speaking the gospel to ourselves, telling each other these beautiful stories of you and your grace, singing aloud to the top of our voices the song and the story about our great Redeemer. Do this for us, we pray, Lord, and I'm convinced that our doubt will decrease and our faith will increase. The very thing we need while we wait for your return. So we pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.